We're going to start off and we're going to talk about this passage of Scripture. And I'm going to uh, include a lot of different Scriptures this morning, so I'm asking you to, uh, to maybe just jot down the references uh, so that you can refer to those later if you'd like. Um, not sure we'll have time to, you know, for everybody to uh, page through to every one of them. Uh, but do write them down if you uh, want to make sure that you can access them later. When we look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to see that there are four things uh, that Paul is exhorting Christians to do. Four exhortations. I'm going to break it up into those four. And then those things are followed by an important promise. Four exhortations. It just means uh, something to urge or to plead uh, that you would do as a Christian brother or sister. And the first one, of course, is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, yesterday, uh, or was it two, two nights ago, uh, I was sitting around the dinner table at my mom's house, and my brother-in-law asked if he should break out into singing the old chorus, Rejoice in the Lord Always, at this particular point in the sermon. And uh, I told him no. Um, <laughs> but maybe you remember that song, that chorus, and we used to sing it in a round. I know but you'd start over here singing it, and then the middle would sing, and then the other side of the church would sing, Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again I say rejoice. And... We've heard that verse, and it's probably one that we have memorized, even though we don't really know that we have it memorized. The word rejoice comes from the word kairo, which is uh, an interesting Greek word. It's kind of related to uh, other words that we have, uh, the word for grace, for instance. It means glad, be rejoiced. It's used 70 sometimes in the New Testament. And Paul says here that we are to rejoice. But he also includes that phrase, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the source of our joy as we walk this earth every day. Paul had been a great example to the Philippians about the concept of, of rejoicing always um, when he first uh, encountered them. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, we see the story of Paul and uh, Silas and how they were imprisoned in Philippi during his missionary journey there. Um, and as a result of his imprisonment, we see these things happening. It starts in verse 25, and I want to read this to you. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul's in prison. And here he is rejoicing, singing praises, praying to God. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, knowing that harsh punishment and even his own life was in danger because he let his prisoners get away. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set foot food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You think that story had been told in the Philippian church a few times? Yeah. The Philippians knew about Paul and knew that he was a man to rejoice even in the harshest of circumstances. And that's what it means, to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice and to understand our position and our place in the Lord in no matter what circumstance we might find ourselves. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, it's tough to do sometimes. There are situations in life that are terrible that we have to go through. But the fact that we are in the Lord and the Lord is in those situations and circumstances with us is why we can rejoice. Paul, in his letters, teaches that a spirit of rejoicing transcends all of our earthly circumstances. And that Christian joy, our ability to rejoice, is actually proven through hardship and through difficulty. We don't really know if we have that joy, if we can just rejoice in the wonderful times in our life, but we really know that it's been tested and proven when we can rejoice in hardship. Paul talks about rejoicing in Philippians. It's one of the themes of this letter that we have seen as we've been going through it. In chapter 1, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is saying that he rejoices in spite of those who preach the word in order to make his imprisonment even worse. He was just glad that the word was being preached and was, was able to rejoice in spite of what it might have meant for him. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. He rejoiced even in his present condition, and you know that he wrote this letter from prison and while he was in great danger. And later on in this chapter, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. That he was rejoicing that they were able to share together once again. I've often thought about what makes the church attractive. What is it that will help to bring people to Christ? in our community, in our nation, around the world? What are some of the things that make the church a place the world wants to gravitate to? And I really think that one of those things, there's, there's more than one, obviously, but I think one of those things is to be joyful. To be joyful even in the midst of terrible circumstances. And to be joyful about the message that we have received. In the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, chapter 8, we see a passage where Ezra, the scribe, and a priest was going to read the law, read the word of God to the people of Israel. And this was after a time where the word had been neglected. A lot of people would have been very unfamiliar with God's law, God's message to the people. It sounds hard to believe, but that was the case. 
And he stands up and he's going to read the word to the people. And as you read that passage, um, you, you notice some things that are going on here. The people were very attentive to the law as it was being read. They stood up as the law was being read. They lifted up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped. They worshipped with their faces to the ground, as the passage says. We would consider and to look at this, as the Israelites did, as a very holy and very solemn moment as the word of God was being read. But I want you to notice down in verse 9 what happens, what it says here. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Sometimes I think our understanding or our knowledge of the Scriptures brings a kind of uh, dourness to to who we are. That it's serious stuff, you know, to read the Word of God. And while that is true, I also think that it's important to understand that we need to rejoice in the message of the Word. Even in those commandments and in those uh, uh, practices in the New Testament that might seem difficult or challenging, the words that might be hard to read sometimes, that when we understand and we know what God expects of us, man, that should bring great rejoicing, just as it did to the people of Israel in that day. And when we can embrace the message of God's word, the good news of the gospel, and the good news of the gospel doesn't um, mince words about things like sin and wickedness and evil in the world. It doesn't uh, hesitate to call us out for who we are and what we have done, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and we might be forgiven of those things. And we need to embrace that and be joyful about that and be glad to share that with with those who who need to hear it. The next exhortation uh, that the passage tells us about is found in verse 5. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, uh, but it is an important exhortation, I believe, uh, that Paul is sharing here. He says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now that word reasonable is an interesting word simply because of the variety of ways in which it might be translated. Epiaikos is the word in the Greek. Whether I pronounce that right or not, I don't know, but that's what it sounds like or looks like. Epiaikos. Here's some words that might be used to translate that word. Equitableness. Gentleness. Suitableness, forbearance, 
and the, the idea of tempering legal justice with mercy. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I think what this passage, and I think it's connected to the, to the uh, passage that we've already read about Yodia and Syntyche, is that we need to, uh, to make sure that we are uh, being merciful, that we are not uh, overly legalistic about the way in which we uh, treat others and the way in which we uh, handle the Word of God. I think this word describes the heart of a person who is willing to let the Lord fight his battles, to let the Lord be the one to uh, struggle against uh, evils in our society, let the Lord be the one to uh, avenge his name and his word, as it says in Romans 12, verse 19. It describes a person who's really free to let go of his anxieties, all the things that cause him stress, because he knows that the Lord is going to take up his cause. That we don't have to be the ones to uh, fight and to uh, battle against others in defending the church and defending God's word because God himself will make sure that he does that. That it's our job to be reasonable and merciful and gentle in our approach with people. Now there's kind of a scale in which you can think about this particular word. Okay? And we obviously need to be make sure that we are kind of in the middle of that particular scale. And on the one side of the scale would be legalism, to be harsh and strict and uh, not forbearing and merciful with others. And then on the far end of the scale in this idea is the word, the word that I would say is tolerance. We're not talking about tolerance here. We're not talking about allowing for anything and accepting anything just to be gentle and kind and nice to other people. But we are being reasonable and gentle in the way in which we apply the Word of God. Letting the Word of God speak, letting the Word of God's authority stand where it should, but it's not my job to um, beat someone over the head with it in a manner that is not gentle, not reasonable. And I think that's an important exhortation that we see here. In order for those people to be brought together in the church, in order for disagreements, in order to be, to be uh, um, reconciled, that spirit needs to be alive and well. Not a spirit of tolerance, but a spirit of mercy and reasonableness. All right, so I told you that I was going to be telling you a joke here, and so this is the time for my joke, because the next passage that we're going to be talking about here is in, uh, in verse 6, the, the next exhortation says, do not be anxious about anything, and the title of the message this morning was actually, hold on to the word of life when you are all stressed out, and so this, this joke, I think, applies a little bit to that, and this, it's kind of a classic one, so you've probably, well, maybe you've heard it, I'm not sure, 
But there was a uh, husband uh, and his wife, and he had not been feeling very well. And so uh, they decided to go to the doctor, and they were going to both go together. And the husband had a, a checkup, a pretty thorough checkup. And after it was all over with, the doctor asked uh, the wife if she would stay behind and he wanted to visit with her. And so she did, and he said, listen, your husband has um, an extremely serious stress problem. Um, and if something isn't done about it, uh, I'm afraid he's going to be dead within a matter of months. So what I need for you to do is you need to make sure that uh, he has three solid meals a day, make a really nice healthy breakfast and a uh, good lunch, have something special at night for him to, to eat. Make sure that you are uh, being pleasant all the time. Um, try not to bother him with uh, those difficulties that you encounter every day. Make sure that uh, the kids are not causing uh, too much stress. Try to uh, deal with uh, those disciplinary issues with the kids uh, and make sure he doesn't have to worry about those. Uh, try to make yourself attractive. Uh, schedule a couple of romantic encounters each week uh, with your husband. Um, don't burden him with uh, doing too many chores. And he said, if, I, if, you, if you practice these things over about the next 10 months or so, then I think we'll be able to, to nurse your husband uh, back to health and, and he will be fine. And so on the way home in the car, the husband asked the wife, says, uh, so what did the doctor have to say? And she turned to him and said, unfortunately, you don't have very long to live. <laughs> so <laughs> we deal with stress and anxiety all the time. And over the last two years, 18 months, if you will, uh, we have really seen an uptick in the levels of stress and anxiety amongst people in, uh, in the world and in our country. Uh, the American Psychological Association puts out a report every year about stress in America. Uh, it's the results of a survey that's conducted by Harris Polling, which you've probably heard about. And for many years, and uh, oftentimes, uh, the top three uh, areas of stress for people uh, consistently have been money, work-related issues, and the economy. And depending on what year it is, uh, those may hover anywhere between 50, 55% to upwards of 75% uh, in terms of responses in the survey, that these are the things that stress us out the most. And just recently, over the last uh, few years, they've been adding things to their survey. Things like uh, the state of our country. Of course, in the last uh, year and a half, added many questions on their survey about COVID-19, the government's response to things related to COVID. And so, uh, this report um, kind of outlines and details the way in which our country and our people uh, feel about the things that stress them out in life. 
the things that cause anxiety. And it's a pretty interesting report uh, when, you, when you look at it each year. What are some of our fears and anxieties? I would imagine that many of the things that we just mentioned already have been on there. Uh, there are uh, lots of others. Relationships can be a, a, a cause of stress. Health can be a cause of stress and anxiety. There are lots of things that cause us to worry and to be anxious. The word in the, in the Greek here is merimnao, merimnao, M-E-R-I-M-N-A-O. And just simply means fear or anxiety or deep concern. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul uses the very same word when he says, for I have no one like him, referring to uh, one of his disciples, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. It's actually, it seems like in, used in a positive context, genuinely concerned. It's the same word as in chapter 4. The difference is that it becomes anxiety when our concern becomes self-centered. When our concern begins to turn inward and we begin to think about how am I going to deal with this? What am I going to do about this situation and circumstance? And I think it's interesting that the, the fact that uh, this word uh, used here in, in Philippians 2 and Philippians 4, the same word, because I think that oftentimes uh, people who work in the church, people who work in ministries, believe that they are kind of exempt from this passage. <laughs> that we shouldn't worry, do not be anxious about anything, unless, of course, it's the Lord's work, and then you really need to be concerned about that. It's okay to be anxious and to worry about God's church and God's people. And we might even think that that's an honorable, noble kind of a thing. But I don't believe it is. I believe that just because we're doing the Lord's work doesn't mean that worrying and stressing about it is okay. It still needs to be under the guise of this particular verse. Do not be anxious about anything. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 37, we read about this experience on the part of the disciples that on the Sea of Galilee. Verse 23 says, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? There's three things that we can grab hold of really quickly from this passage, this story about Jesus and the disciples. Number one is that there are going to be storms that happen in life. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be times when our lives are in danger. There's going to be times when difficulties come, when we're going to have to struggle. No different than these disciples who were facing uh, shipwreck, possible death because of this storm. But we also need to recognize that Jesus has power over storms. Jesus has power over those challenging moments in your life. 
Number one, the possibility of changing those circumstances and, and fixing the problem that might be there, but that's not even necessarily how he will deal with all those. That he has power in the sense that there's nothing, none of those things, none of those circumstances, situations can separate you from him. There is a powerful attachment to God that nothing can tear apart, no matter what kind of a situation or circumstance it is. That's great power. You have a loving relationship with family members or friends. Is there something that could tear that apart? Sure, there is. In spite of how close that relationship might be, there are some things, because we're human and because of what, what happens in our world, that those things can be torn apart. But the power of Christ is that nothing can separate you from him, no matter how difficult and challenging it might be. And the last thing to see from this is that if we are with Jesus, then he brings peace. And the peace of knowing and understanding that he is right there with us, no matter what the situation. So we've seen we need to rejoice always. We need to make sure that we have a spirit of gentleness, forbearance, knowing that the Lord is at hand. We need not to be anxious, to worry about anything that um, might uh, come up. And then we need to make sure that we are communicating with God about all those things. There are four words here. Four words dealing with communication that we have with God in this passage. Verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. <clears throat> prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and requests. Four words that are talked about here. The first one, prosuke, the word for prayer. The idea that it is uh, communication directly with, to God, addressed to God. And an in interesting thing about that word in the Greek is that there is an implication in that word that we are um, willing to give over ourselves in that prayer. When we pray to God, what's very important, that we are willing to accept what God says. We are willing to give ourselves over to his will. And that's implied in this particular word, prosuke, in, in terms of prayer. In Matthew 21, verse 22, the word is used again. It says, whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. If you're willing to accept God's answer, you will believe you will receive. The second word, deesis, D-E-E-S-I-S, -E -E has to do with a need, addressing a need, asking uh, for God to meet the needs of others, to help them. The word is translated in, in our Bible here today, supplication. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The active prayer 
diesis of a righteous person has great power. When we appeal to God on the basis and on behalf of other people, we come to that with a, a righteous expectation that has great power. The word thanksgiving in this passage is eucharistia. means thanksgiving. Notice the word charis. The root charis is also in this particular word. Just like the word rejoicing. It says thanksgiving. Colossians 1-2 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins that we thank God for what he has done for us and how he has brought us out of darkness. And the last word, itema, means requests or petitions, things that we long for, things that we really want to, uh, to, to have in our life. And in 1 John five fifteen it says, and if we know that he hears us regarding what we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That our fourth exhortation here is to, to pray in all of these ways with an understanding that we're giving ourselves over to God's will, that we are asking uh, that he accomplish his will in the lives of his people. So we have these four things. Rejoice, to be reasonable and gentle, do not be anxious, and to make sure that we pray extensively. Paul is telling us we need to do those things, but then in the next verse, he shares with us the promise. In verse 7, it says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here, irene, means peace, but not so much the way in which the world understands the, the idea of peace. When we talk about peace in our world, it's usually the absence of conflict. We want people to get along, nations to get along with one another. <clears throat> but that's really not what the word peace here means. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it is the fulfillment of all the things in, a one, in one's life that will bring contentment, satisfaction, dare I say happiness even. And it says here, the peace of God. <clears throat> what is God's peace? You ever thought about that? What is it that, how would you describe God's peace? He is at peace. Charles Spurgeon described it this way. He said, it is the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God. The eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. Think about it, that God is at peace, which makes sense <clears throat> if God is perfect and God has uh, demonstrated his love and his uh, righteousness to his people, that he would be at peace with what has transpired. 
Now, God is also uh, having to deal with us as humans. People of conflict, people of sin, people who have fallen short. But in all of that, God is always at peace with the way in which he deals with us. He's doing everything that he can. He's doing all that he, he knows in order to reestablish a relationship with his people. He wants to be a father to all of his children. And so he can be at peace knowing that he is doing everything possible to accomplish that. It's an amazing kind of concept to think about God being at peace. But that very same peace is going to be given to us. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. Something difficult to to describe, difficult to define, something that goes beyond just our ability to understand it and to think about it to the point which we need and must experience it. It surpasses all the other means by which we try to attain peace. Think about all the things that the world tells us we should be doing in order to live peaceful lives. I went through and I I started on a Google search looking for ways in which we try to achieve peace in our lives. And it was amazing. Pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of things on the internet of, you know, advice and suggestions and steps to doing this and here's how and this is what you should be doing. Self-help tools, ways that you yourself can bring this peace to your life. It was like self-help is kind of a funny term, you know. If you could help yourself, then why don't we call it help? Seems like that would come from somebody else. Self-medicating. People use that method in order to try to achieve some sort of peace or contentment or happiness in their life. Visualization. Trying to see things the way they really aren't. Hoping that that somehow will bring me peace. If I can imagine how it should be, even though that's the way it's not, maybe that will help. Just developing a positive outlook. Be positive about things. Notice the good things in life. And put your head in the sand and ignore all of the bad things. Uh, doing good for others. Trying to uh, be busy enough by doing good to uh, not think about those things that are conflicts in life. Relaxation techniques. And we could go right on down the line. All the things that the world does to achieve peace. And I'm not going to say that those don't achieve a certain amount of peace in our lives at times. That they can be helpful for a time to calm us, to help us to relax, to help us maybe to feel a little bit more positive about the world and ourselves. But this peace that we receive surpasses the understanding, not just of 
the worldly man or worldly philosophy and ideas and psychology, but even the godly man cannot comprehend this peace, even though we try to. It surpasses all our understanding and must be experienced in Christ. There's a story one time about a king who commissioned the artists and the painters in the land to paint a portrait of peace. Kind of an abstract idea to try to put it uh, on a canvas, but that's what they were supposed to do. He wanted to understand their vision of what peace looked like. So there were lots of different drawings, many different paintings that were presented to the king for his approval. And after all, going through all of them, there were two that remained that he, he looked at and thought, I, I like both of these. One of them was a painting of a very calm and placid lake. It was as clear as crystal. You could see the reflection of this vast mountain range there in the lake, blue skies with clouds above, not unlike what you might see if you walked into the Cabinet Mountains. All this was in that painting, and it was a very beautiful painting. Everyone thought, surely this is the painting that the king will choose. And he loved it, but there was another one that he liked even more. The painting was also of a painting of a mountain, but it was sharp, rugged, craggy mountain. Overhead, there was a stormy, threatening sky with lightning bolts. Coming off the mountain was a roaring waterfall. But if you really look closely behind the waterfall in a little crack in the rock, there was a nest. There was a bird in the nest, peacefully tending to her nest, even in this stormy, threatening terrain around her. And that's the picture of peace that the king chose. Now, it's still not a very you know, perfect example of, of what peace, and it still is our attempt to try to understand it in some way, but we can't. Even in the light of that story, we still don't have a clear understanding of the tremendous peace that is afforded us in Christ. Peace is a, a chapter, or excuse me, a topic that is dealt with in many chapters of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 26, speaking of God, who keep you, says you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jesus spoke about his desire for peace for his disciples. In John chapter 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And in John 16, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And here are these words that God gave to Moses to have Aaron speak to the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This peace that only comes from from God says will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard here is a military term to show that there is protection, that there are, you know, that God is going to stand by our heart and our mind with sword in hand 
to protect us, protect our heart and our mind. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, the very same word here, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By God's power, we are being guarded. And notice what it says here. In the same way that our hearts are guarded by that peace, that we are being guarded, our salvation is being guarded. And notice what it says here. It's being guarded through faith. How do we attain this peace that is impossible to understand? How do we experience this unsurpassed peace of God? It's very simple. It's through faith. Phil had that illustration the other day of the you know, past, present, and future. And that we have peace, we have faith, because we look into the past and we understand what God did for us. We can see all that God has done and what he accomplished through Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the present then, and that now, at this particular point in time, I can trust and give over my life, my actions, my thoughts to God. I can entrust that to him, and then that allows me to have peace, to know that tomorrow is taken care of. And it comes through faith. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. With all joy and peace in believing that it is through faith. As we wrap up our message this morning, I want to, I want to bring this back to an uh, understanding of what God has in store for us in terms of our salvation. That To understand that as we've talked about these exhortations, these things that God wants to accomplish for us or wants us to do through him, and then this promise of peace that we have been given, we need to understand that that begins by having a peaceful, a peace relationship with God. True peace only comes from God. There's no other way. Our age is characterized by the invention of all sorts of devices to make us feel good without actually being good, to banish evil without actually stopping evil in some way, to get the gifts that God wants to give us without actually having a need for God. Jeremiah, back in the day, spoke of the false prophets who cried out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. 
Too many people are trying to uh, get therapy, to get adjusted, uh, to be cured without being converted. You're going to psychiatrists. We read uh, about ways in which our sins can be explained, when excuses can be made, when justifications can be offered, when reasons why sin is there to explain away our guilt, when in reality we just need to come to God and have our sins forgiven. We need to believe that what he did for us is enough. There's no peace of mind so long as there's conflict in the heart. There's no peacefulness if there is no righteousness. And it doesn't say that we have to, that our righteousness comes from ourself and we accomplish peace. Righteousness means to be in a right state with God, to accept his peace offering and allow that to, to mend and to reconcile the relationship that we have with God. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19, Isaiah writes, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That this peace only comes through God. It only comes through Christ. And that's the beginning point. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That Jesus is our peace. He is the one who has given his life so that we might be reconciled to God. And in that reconciliation with God, we might be able to, to, to have and experience that peace that only God can bring. If you've never experienced that initially, if you've never had that peace that comes from knowing that Christ stands for you and with you, then we invite you to do that today. It's an opportunity for you to, um, to be at peace with God. And when you're at peace with God, then God's peace can come to rest upon you. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so very thankful for all that you have <clears throat> given us, but especially that sense and understanding that we are right with you. That that reassurance and that knowledge of the fact that we are at peace with you through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us then puts us in a place where we can experience all that you want us to experience, even 
in the most difficult, the most trying, the most challenging parts of our life. Father, we would ask that any of those who might have never made that initial um, decision to give their life to you might do that this morning. We pray that as you've given us a deeper understanding of, uh, of your desire for, for us, that uh, this morning that we'll draw closer and be able to experience that as you have promised in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.